I don't know if family reunions were a thing with your family, but when I was a kid, my brothers and I would always go with my step-grandmother. Her family would have a family reunion in Alabama in January every year. And so we would go for a few days, and it was awesome. It was country food, country people. I mean, it's just country as you can imagine. Like, that's what it was. Um, we'd stay for a few days. We'd stay at my step-grandmother's cousin's, and so they had, like, this farm. Her husband was a semi-truck driver, so we got to see the truck. Uh, they had animals. They had this hot tub. It was awesome. It was so much fun. And technically, again, she was my step-grandmother, so if I thought some of my cousins were cute, they weren't actually my cousin, so that's not weird. Now... <laughs> When I share the story of going to this family reunion, what's weird for me, it's, it's weird for me to say that she is my step-grandmother because she's really my grandmother. I mean, that's what she is. I don't introduce her as my step-grandmother. I mean, she is family. Uh, she's a little bit younger than my grandfather. And so if and when my grandfather passes before she does, uh, she's going to be taken care of by us. She's not going to be uh, put to the side. She is family. She's family. And I share that story today because as we continue in our time in Genesis, the question we're going to be looking at this morning is this, who gets to attend God's family reunion? Right? Who gets to be invited into, who gets to participate in the family of God? If God is wholly different than us, if we are not God, if we are not like God, then how can we be adopted into, how can we be ingratiated into God's family? What do we have to do or say or how do we have to behave? What does it take for us to participate in his family reunion. And so we're looking at that question today in the light of another family reunion we're going to read about. Um, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 42? If not, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, today, we're looking at the family reunion between Joseph and his brothers, though at least in today's text, his brothers aren't going to realize it's him. And what Joseph's going to do is he's going to test his brothers to see if they have changed, right? Do they really care for everyone in their family? Because if you've been with us, the Joseph story started, he was the 11th of 12 brothers. He was favored by his father. He had a position of authority. And so he has dreams that his brothers and his family are going to bow down to him in the future. And so basically they sell him into slavery. They tell their dad that he was killed by a wild animal. He gets sold into slavery. Then he gets put into prison for something he didn't do. But then he interprets the Pharaoh's dream. He talks about how there's going to be a famine and then how there's going to be years of plenty. And so long story short, if you haven't been with us, he gets elevated into one of uh, Pharaoh's most coveted uh, high governmental position. And he's running really the country when it comes to food and grain. So he makes a plan of how they're going to collect grain for the first seven years of this excess and then how they're going to distribute the food when the seven years of famine come. And so now uh, if, uh, Joseph's in this high ranking position in the Egyptian government uh, and this, the famine has started, not just in Egypt, but in the surrounding regions of Egypt, people are starving. And so they're beginning to come to Egypt because they've, they've heard that there's grain that they can buy there. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. Chapter 42, verse one, it says this. When Jacob learned, this is Joseph's dad, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So again, the famine is impacting not just Egypt, but the land of Canaan, which is kind of like Israel, Palestine, Middle East area today, the places around Egypt as well. Jacob hears about the extra food, and so he's instructing his sons who are adults in their own right at this time, but Jacob is still alive. He's kind of the patriarch, the authority of the family. And so he says, for us to survive, you guys need to go to Egypt and buy some grain. 
Verse 3, it says this. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel, which are the sons of Jacob, were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was, was in the land of Canaan. And so uh, Jacob sends 10 of his sons. And if you actually make a timeline of events of what have happened, uh, Joseph's and Joseph's life, it's been about 20 years. So Joseph has been in Egypt for about 20 years now. For 13 years, he was enslaved. And then for some of that, he was also imprisoned. And then there's been at least seven years of plenty because the famine has started. So it's been at least 20 years since Joseph has been there. Uh, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, would probably be in their 40s or 50s at this point. So they're, they're adults. Uh, they're married, they have kids of their own, but again, Jacob's still kind of the leader of the family and of the tribe. Yet interestingly, Jacob won't send Benjamin. So Benjamin was, Benjamin was J, uh, Joseph's only full brother. He wasn't a half brother, he was a full brother. He was the only remaining son that Jacob had with his favored wife, Rachel, because Rachel died in childbirth with Benjamin. So after Joseph, who was sold, but, and, but Jacob's sons told Jacob that he was killed uh, some 20 years prior, Joseph uh, Benjamin is now the favorite child. It says sons of Israel in verse 5. What the author is trying to show us is that the sons of Jacob, Israel, is starting to become the kind of their own tribe. It's started to form into their own people group. And so even the Israelites have to go to Egypt to buy grain. So he sends them all, but he doesn't want Benjamin to go because he doesn't want to lose Benjamin as well. And then it says this in verse 6. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. So his brothers come down. Joseph, he's the one overseeing all of the grain. Now, he certainly did not meet with everybody and every foreigner who came into the land of Egypt. And so it was in God's providence that he gets placed in front of his brothers. And again, for us, we kind of read these things quickly. Can you just for a second imagine what this must have been like for Joseph? It's been over 20 years. He likely never thought he would see his family again. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's his brothers. Like, what would you do in that situation? It's his brothers. Now, his brothers don't recognize him. Now, it's important to remember, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And so he wasn't like 25 or 35. Like, he was still growing and developing. Most of us do physically change from the time we're teenagers to when we're older. Uh, unless you're me. So I actually had my driver's license until last year. was for me when I was 18. Like, I always just updated online, and so it was still 18-year-old me before I got one of those real IDs, and so they had to take a picture. And uh, I always told Christina, I was like, I ain't changed at all, just the hairline. Like, that's it. And she's like, no. But to me, I look the same. And so apparently the people at the DMV said I didn't look the same either. But other than me, most people change as they get older. Not only that, again, Joseph's brothers, there is no world in the world in which his brothers would ever think, not only would they see Joseph again, but that he'd be a high-ranking Egyptian official, and Joseph would have been addressed in Egyptian royalty. He likely would have had some sort of face paint or makeup on to kind of signify his position. And as we'll see here in a little bit, he's actually speaking through an interpreter right now. Although Joseph knows their language, they're not speaking, they're, when they speak to him, they kind of speak through an interpreter. And so that, they have that going on as well. So his brothers have no idea that this is actually Joseph. Then verse 9, it says this, Joseph remembered his dreams about them. 
And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, we were 12 brothers, the sons of one man living in Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and, the, and one is no longer living. So again, remember back in Genesis 37, before jo Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, he has two dreams where there's essentially different things are bowing down to him. And he interpreted it and shared it to his family as if it represented them, that his whole family is going to one day bow down to him. Remember, he's the second youngest. And so not only was he favored by Jacob, then he has dreams like this. And so it's just added to the disdain that his brothers had for him. And so uh, he says that, uh, and yet here it is, all right, it's happening for fruition. His brothers are actually bowing to him. But then in response, he accuses his brothers of being spies. He's like, you're only here to try to find the weak parts of our Egyptian land so that you can go back and gather your tribe and try to attack us. And so here, Joseph is going to start testing his brothers to see if they have changed or if they are still the same. So as a part of their plea for innocence, they say, no, uh, if we were spies, do you think our father would really send 10 brothers, like 10 of us? Because if something were to happen to us, he'd lose 10 sons. Like if you were trying to spy on a land, you wouldn't send all of your sons like this. Uh, we're, all the same, we're all the sons of one man, which is actually more true than they realize because Joseph is also the same son of that man. And so again, we're not spies. If we were spies, this is not how it would have been done. And so they, they continue this back and forth. They continue to talk. And then Joseph basically has this idea where he puts them in jail for three days. He's like, no, you are spies. He puts them in jail for three days. And then at the end of that, he lets nine of the 10 brothers go back to their land of Canaan to retrieve the brother Benjamin. And then the, they would leave one brother in Egypt. And the only way to get this Egyptian, the brother that's still in Egypt, was to come back with Benjamin to retrieve him. If they don't come back, then this brother is going to stay. And the question is, is, will they come back for just one brother or will they be more happy with their own freedom not to return? So he sends them back. The only one that, gets, that has to stay is Simeon. So Simeon stays. They go back on their way back to their father. They start to assume that this is happening to them because they're being punished for how they treated their brother Joseph all those years before. And actually, they actually have this conversation in front of Joseph, but they don't know Joseph can understand them because they don't know that Joseph can speak Hebrew. They're speaking Hebrew to each other, assuming he has no idea what's going on. He hears uh, that they're arguing about these things. He hears that they're arguing about his own death. And so Joseph actually has to leave the room because he's overcome with emotion. And then he orders that all their grain be filled. He orders without them knowing that all their silver that they came to buy the grain with be put back in their sack. And he sends them all home except for Simeon. So they get home. Once they get home, they tell Jacob what happened, how they had to leave Simeon, and how the only way for them to, go, to buy more grain in the future and to get Simeon back is that if Benjamin returns to him, returns with him, that's the only way, right? But Jacob, Joseph is uh, dead already. Simeon's now in jail. And so Jacob's uh, 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 frustrated. He's angry. And then he's more angry because when they get home, they find out that all the silver is still in their bags, so it looks like they stole from the Egyptian. So Jacob's like, no, you're not going back. You're not sending Benjamin. You stole from them. None of these things are happening. So after a while, it then says this. If you look down to verse 37, verse 37, it says this. Eventually, they, they want to go back to Egypt, but they can't unless they take Benjamin with them. And it says this. Then Reuben, who was the oldest of all the sons, said to his father, 
You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Talking about Benjamin. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob answered, my son will not go down with you for, you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So again, it's just worth us knowing here that Reuben, who's the oldest, responds. He pleads that he says, I'll let Benjamin be in charge under my care and I will bring him back. He's essentially putting his own sons, his own two sons in place of the life of Benjamin if anything would happen. But even though Jacob rejects it, it is hard not to see Reuben genuinely desiring to do right by Simeon, by his father Jacob, and by Benjamin. Now again, remember, Rachel herself only had two sons, and Jacob favored both of them, Joseph and then Benjamin. He doesn't want to lose, risk losing Benjamin as well, and that Jacob here would rather leave Simeon in prison than go back and lose Benjamin. And so what you need to understand here is we're talking about this idea of, of how do we get into God's family reunion? Well, what do we, one of the things this text shows us is this, that invitation into God's family is not given based on association. It's not even based on association. Let me explain what I mean here. Reuben, he's the oldest. Jacob is getting up there in years. And so he's traditionally supposed to have the most authority of all the brothers. He's supposed to start getting some of the authority of Jacob placed on to him. Yet, if you read the story of what happened to uh, Joseph, they actually, his brothers actually sold Joseph into slavery without telling Reuben. Like Reuben wasn't there when they decided to sell him into slavery. And now Jacob rejects Reuben's offers to bring him back to Egypt, bring Benjamin with him to Egypt. Now, again, if you've been with us, you know that he's already blown it previously with Jacob. Uh, so just because he's the firstborn, it doesn't automatically grant him this acceptance, right? He, he slept with Rachel's maidservant after Rachel died as kind of this power play of sexual dominance. And so he's lost his position of authority. So even though he is the oldest, and traditionally speaking, he should be the one to care for Benjamin, just because he is the one in position of authority does not grant him the association or the privilege to get to do what he wants to do. I kind of maybe think of it this way. In the South, it's kind of funny to me. Many times in the South, we assume that we are good with God just by association. So let me give you an example. I hear very often of like, for example, like, well, I have a family member somewhere, like my sisters, friends, brothers, cousins, aunts, uncle, whatever, who's a pastor or they work for a church. And so the assumption is I'm good because I, by, I, actually, have a, I actually have a friend that like says this to me all the time. He's like, no, I'm good because you, like you, you're going to get me in. Like I'm here, I'm good, right? Or you'll hear things like, well, I prayed a prayer one time when I was eight years old. Like I'm not following Jesus now, but like I, I prayed the prayer. I came down to church and so I'm good. Or I went to church when I was a kid. Or I go like on Christmas and Easter or every once in a while when I feel bad or when I've made a bad decision. And so I'm good. Or I grew up going to church. And so, so we often think just by association or just by our status or just by things we've done that, that we're good. Reuben here in this story, being firstborn in and of itself makes no difference. He doesn't get to bring Benjamin with him. Jacob doesn't trust him. And so when it comes to being invited into God's family, it's not based on association. It's not based on something you did or someone you know. It's based on something else. And so if we keep reading, here's what happens next. Chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up all the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. Now, we're not told here how much time had passed 
but they're now out of grain again. Simeon's been in prison for a while, and they have no choice. They have to go back to Egypt if they're going to feed not just their family, but the people that are living with them, all their flocks. I mean, everybody, they have to go back. At this point, Judah reminds their dad, well, dad, we can't go back unless Benjamin comes with us. Now, it's important to, again, remember, I just want to, I know this may be confusing with all the names, I just want to say this. Um, Judah is the oldest son still in good standing with Jacob. He's the fourth oldest, but Reuben, he had his disqualification. Simeon and Levi, you read about in Genesis 34 where they massacred a whole town, and so because of what happened to their sister, and so they're out. Judah is the fourth oldest, but he now seems to be the place of authority in the family. And so he, even though he has his own sinful past, we read about it in Genesis chapter 38, where he essentially sleeps with his own daughter-in-law because he, he thinks she's a prostitute. But since that time has happened, he's reconciled, he's forgiven, and that didn't actually um, hurt Jacob. And so it hasn't hurt his family, his hierarchy in the family tree. And so I also just want to say this, if you were with us, I know it's a few weeks ago, but Genesis 38 until now, um, all, all of that could have happened within the 22 years that Joseph was put into slavery. In fact, many scholars believe that it had. That after Joseph was sold into slavery, uh, Judah has his three sons, and his first son marries Tamar and dies. And so his second son takes Tamar as a wife and then dies. And then he lies to her, doesn't give her her third son, and then finds that she kind of dresses up as a prostitute. He sleeps with her because she's just trying to survive. And then he wants her to be killed until he's confronted with the fact that he's the one that impregnated her. And then he repents. He says that she is more righteous than he. So I think it's just, it's just interesting. By the first, if not by the second time they're going to go to Egypt, which is right here, he likely has already blown it and repented himself. And now he is the one who's going to be in charge of the family. He's been humbled by his own sin, and now he's going to go. And so Jacob is going to actually trust Judah. So he allows Benjamin to go back with the brothers under the care of Judah. He's still upset with the whole situation, but he allows them to go. He tells them to bring twice as much silver to pay back for the silver that they brought back the first time and to buy more silver again. He even gives them extra gifts to bring to the Egyptians when they go down there. He prays that God will protect them. And then it says this, chapter 43, verse 15. If you look down to verse 15, it says this. The men took this gift, double the amount of silver, and Benjamin. They immediately went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, basically one of his assistants, take them into my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. So who knows, maybe it's been a year, six months, nine months, two years, we're not sure. But his brothers came back. This had to have been a surprise probably by this point for Joseph. And he sees his brothers and he also sees Benjamin. He also sees Benjamin, who probably, again, he thought at this point, they're not going to come back for Simeon. They're not going to bring Benjamin. So he sees them. He tells one of his attendants to bring them to my house and to prepare a feast for my brothers. Now, the brothers don't know why they're going to Joseph's house. They think they're in trouble, either because they got found out because they stole the silver the first time. They don't know why they're going. They go to Joseph's house, and then they, they come. Joseph then meets his brothers. He meets Benjamin. And then he says he has to leave the room because he's so overcome with emotion, right? His brothers came back. Benjamin, the favored brother, even though he gets all the rights and privileges, they're trying to be safe and secure. They bring Benjamin. Can you, again, imagine what this was like for Joseph? They returned. They brought Benjamin they bowed down to him again, which was God's faithful promise to Joseph in Genesis 37 when he had his dreams. Again, there's 
no world where Joseph could have imagined this would actually happen. And he's overwhelmed by God's grace in his life. Has that ever happened to you? Like maybe think of a time in your life where you're just overcome by God's blessing. Even in the hardships of life, when you think back about when God has been faithful and how he's loved you. There's so many examples for me. I think about uh, my wife, Christina, or our kids, a blessing that they are, a joy it is to be a family with them. I think of New City and all the stories that have happened, so many stories over the six and a half years that we've been around. I think of the house that we bought a little over a year ago, which is like five minutes from the church. And there's a whole, it would take me like 30 minutes to explain to you how, how we got it, how we shouldn't have got it, and God's kindness and goodness and faithfulness. There's so many times in my life, and I'm guessing in yours, where you can become overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And that's what Joseph is. That's where he's at. Where he's at. And then it says this in verse 33, verse 33 of chapter 43. It says this, they were seated before him in order by age, from firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other with astonishment. Verse 34, portions were served to them from Joseph's table. And Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and became drunk with Joseph. Now, this, again, by the way, is another test. Benjamin, who's also Rachel's son, also Joseph's only full brother, he's favored by Jacob, and he's going to get favored treatment in front of all the family. He's going to get five times more food, five times more drink, five times more everything. And the question is, how will his brothers respond? Now, it says here that they became drunk, which could mean that they drank too much. It also could mean that they became fully content. They were fully satisfied. In fact, if you were to, if I, if you were to ask me what I think is happening, it's probably a mixture of both. <laughs> they probably got drunk and they got sad. They were, they were just fully happy with the situation, right? They, they were like, this is like, we're living the good life. That's at least what they're thinking. And so what happens after the meal is that Joseph then commands that these men have their sacks full again with as much grain as they can carry. And then they, he tells his attendants to put their money back in their bags without them knowing. He says, put their money back in their bags. Apparently, his brothers still treated Benjamin with respect, even though his portions were much bigger. They didn't seem to harbor any jealousy. And so the next day, he sends them on their way home. He lets Simeon out of jail, he sends his brothers full of grain, full of money back home. And it seems that they passed the test, but the test is not over. There's one more thing. And so after he lets his brothers continue the journey, he then, he waits a little bit and he sends some men after them. He sends some men after them and he asks his brothers why they committed such a great evil against the Egyptians. And his brothers respond by saying, what are you talking about? Like, we didn't steal anything. We didn't take anything. In fact, we brought back double the silver. We didn't do anything wrong. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so basically they say, well, the people that came after them say, hey, let, me, let us search all of your sacks. And if we find anything that you should not have had, we're going to take that person back with us. If you didn't take anything, you're free to go. But anyone who took something, they have to come back with us. And so it says this, chapter 44, verse 11. Chapter 44, verse 11, it says this. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Verse 12, the steward searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, the narrator here doesn't say anything about the silver that was in their sacks that they didn't know about, but instead it focuses on a special cup. There was some sort of royal special cup that was in Benjamin's sack. 
Now, Benjamin didn't put it there. Someone else put it there, but it's in his sack, which means that now he has to come back and be enslaved in Egypt. But the brother's response here is significant, right? They could have left Benjamin. They could have been on their own way. Yes, it would have not been pleasant to meet their father, but at least they would have lived the rest of their life in freedom. Instead, what do they do? They all return. Nobody is going to leave Benjamin behind. For all they know, Benjamin did actually steal the royal cup. They don't know, but they know it wasn't their fault, and yet they won't leave him. Like something has changed in his brothers to say, we're not going to leave our, our brother, even if he's unfairly treated, unfairly blessed by our dad. And then verse 14, it says this, when Judah, because he's kind of the leader of the brothers now, when Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, so they all go back. He was still there. Joseph was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know a man like me could uncover truth by divination? Basically saying like, don't you know that someone in this high position of power, I have special access to the gods. Now he doesn't know, you know, he kind of thinks that he's just a normal Egyptian. Like, don't you think that I would be able to find out if you stole something from me? Verse 16, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, how can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves. Both we and one in whose possession the cup was found. So again, notice Judah is the leader here. He's the one that speaks on behalf of the rest of his brothers. Joseph says, did you really think you could steal from me and not be found out? Yet Judah says, we have no defense, even though he didn't steal anything. Like, we, we have no defense. We're all going to become your slaves. Right? In other words, the brothers are passing the test. They're not going to leave their brother. Yet Joseph continues, verse 17. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. Right? But then Judah again goes back and forth with Joseph. He still pleads with him. He says, we cannot leave without Benjamin. Uh, if Benjamin must stay, we're all going to stay. In fact, he said, I personally promised our father that I would return Benjamin. And so if he does not come back, I'm not coming back. If, we, if Benjamin cannot go with us, we're all going to stay here. Judah is trying his best here, but what's interesting is it's not working. No matter what he says or promises or does, none of it is working. And as we think of our lives, again, how can we participate in God's family reunion? How can we invite into the kingdom of God? One of the things this text also shows us is this, that invitation into God's family isn't given based on effort. Invitation into God's family is not given, not just based on association and who you know or who your family members with, but even on what you do, right? All the effort, all the work that Judah and his brothers have put in here still aren't enough for Benjamin to be freed. To them, this Egyptian official won't let Benjamin return no matter what they do. For us, for God, it's like, God, I, I promise not to say that again. I, I promise not to do that again. I, I promise not to look at that thing again. I, I promise to be more generous in the future. I, we promise all these things where we say, God, I'm going I'm to try hard. I'm going I'm to do better. Yet this story shows us it's not enough. It's not enough. And the reason we say this again, uh, we've, we've seen this throughout Genesis, right? Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so when you have Jesus in view and who God is and how God treats them, you see Joseph is actually a, a God-like character. Not that he is God, but Jesus is, Jesus is a better and a fuller fulfillment of Joseph. And so when you see how Joseph treats his brothers, it shows us that just like we promise and we, we beg and we, we plead to be better before God, that ain't it. That's not what gets us in. 
So what is it? Like, what is it? How can, if it's not based on who we know and what we do, where does that leave us? Well, here's where this leaves us. Verse 30 to the end, the last thing we'll read. Chapter 44, verse 30. And Judah says this. So if, if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life wrapped up with the boy's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol and sorrow. In other words, he's going to die. Verse 32, your servant became accountable. Again, this is Judith speaking, talked about himself. Your servant became accountable to the father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Verse 33, now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Now, what a plea. I mean, what a plea. What a transformation by Judah. That not only is he doing everything he can for Benjamin, but then he offers to make himself take himself in place as a substitute for Benjamin. He says, take me. He says, let me be your slave, even though Judah did nothing wrong. He says, take my life, only let him go. He says, I cannot, I will not return to my father without his son. By the way, if you read the story of how Joseph was sold into slavery, guess whose idea it was? Judas. Judah came up with the idea to sell him to slavery. And now Judah is saying, I will give my life for my brother, even though I have done no wrong. And so as we read the story of Genesis, who does this sound like? Right? Who does this sound like? Right? Who else gave himself up for another, even though he himself was innocent? Who else wouldn't return to the father without making a way for God's children to be accepted into the family of God? Again, Judah was the one who sold Joseph into slavery. He was the one who disowned his own daughter-in-law in Genesis chapter 38 and then later sleeps with her because he thinks she's a prostitute. And then when he finds out she's pregnant, he wants her killed until he finds out that he's the father. He's the one that did it. Like Judah does not have a good resume. Like He's not the one that you want to compare yourself against. Or maybe you do if you want to make yourself feel better. Right? And yet here, Judah is the one foreshadowing our Messiah. He is showing us what it must take, what must take place for us to be welcomed into God's family. He is pointing to us a picture of the gospel where Jesus came, lived a sinless life, and gave himself as a ransom for many. That he died in our place as our substitute so that we might be invited into the kingdom of God. That Jesus makes possible what we could never promise or attain or associate on our own. He took what we deserve, the sin and wrath of God, so that you and I might experience the grace and mercy of God. The gospel is Jesus as our substitute on our behalf. You know, it makes me think of um, one of my favorite um, stories or analogies of, of the gospel can be explained this way. I, I first heard this by a pastor by the name of Alistair Begg. And he talks about when, when you talk about the gospel, he said, we often think about us. It's about us. Like, because I, right? I deserve forgiveness because I did this. Or when I do this, God will do this. We think our standing before God has to do with our effort. But yet he says the only proper answer for us to get anything from God 
is in the third person because he, because of what he did, what, what he offers, what, what he promised. And so think about, think about it this way. Think about the man on the cross who is now, according to scripture, in the glory of God's kingdom. So Jesus goes on the cross, and at first, he's in between two criminals, right? And at first, both criminals are actually cursing and making fun of Jesus, just like everyone else. But then eventually, later on, the one criminal kind of says, you know, apologizes and asks Jesus, says, remember me in paradise, like all these sorts of things. Like he repents, and he asks the Lord to be kind to him. And so at first, again, he's up on the cross, he's crossing out Jesus like the rest. He's never been to a Bible study. Right? He's never joined a church. Like he, he literally mocked Jesus and then he makes it in. It was like, it was like how do you make it? So it's like, the story goes like this. Like imagine the thief on the cross. He gets to heaven, he gets to the pearly gates and there's an angel and the angel sees the thief on the cross. He's like, what are you doing here? And the thief's like, well, I, I don't know. And the angel's like, well, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, well, because well, because I don't know, I'm just here. And he's like, well, I, hold on, let, let me get my supervisor angel. So he goes to the supervisor angel, it's like the guy on the cross was yelling, Jesus is like, he's here, like, well, what do we do? And so the supervisor angel comes out. He says, okay, so, so we've got a couple of questions for you. Uh, first of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification? He's like, I, uh, how, how, he's like I never heard of it in my life. He's like, okay, okay, what about, uh, let's, let's go to the doctrine of the atonement immediately. What did the atonement do for you? He's like, did what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. It's the guy's just staring at him. So they go back and forth, and the supervisor angel's getting angry. He's getting frustrated. And so eventually, he looks at the thief, and he says, on what basis are you here? Who said you could come? What makes you feel like you are welcome here? On what basis are you here? And the thief looks at him, and he says, because the man on the middle cross said I can come. And look right at me. That is the only answer. It's not because I tried hard or I'm going to do better. Or I'm going to promise better things. It's because Jesus said, I can come. Jesus said, you, the lion of Judah from the offspring of Judah said, you can come. This is the only answer for any of us. And in this text, in this story, we see Judah here willing to give up his life, though he has done nothing wrong so that Benjamin can come. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so again, who gets to attend God's family reunion? Well, here's what we see. That God's family is made up only of people who accept the invitation of his son. God's family is made up only of people who accept the invitation of a son. Here's the good news. Everyone's invited. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to trust and repent and follow the Lord? Are you going to uh, be baptized in response to the grace and mercy that he's given to you? Are you going to walk with him and honor him with your life? Not because you're going to promise to do better, but because he's already given you grace and salvation and mercy, right? God's family is only made up of people who accept his invitation. So no matter what you're walking in here with, maybe you're watching online, what you're dealing with, what you did this week, last night, this morning, your grace, your invitation is not based on you. It's based on him who said you can come. The whole story of the life of Joseph is God's grace repeatedly shown us again and again and again that he takes our place in the midst of our, of our doubts and our failures and our screw-ups and our questions, and he says you can come. And this is the God that we worship. Let's pray.